right. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Miscellaneous Weekly. I accidentally took a month-long break. That's totally my fault. Um, anyway, I'm back with another interview. It seems like this show is becoming more interviews than what I originally started it out to be, but whatever. Today I have a very, very, very special guest, Gabrielle Urbina of Wolf359. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for agreeing to do this. Uh, oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> for people who listen to this show and don't know what Wolf 359 is, which is, would be a little weird because I'm pretty sure I got most of my listeners through Zach, but Wolf 359 is a science fiction audio drama that's been going for three and a half years and just ended on and Christmas. And now it's gone. It is, it is going, going, gone now. Yeah. But the Patreon's still up for extra behind-the-scenes stuff, and if you pledge for even $1, you can get a copy of Bryce and Carter's Deep Space Survival Procedure and Protocol Manual when it comes out, which is either That's late right. today or sometime in the next nine years. <laughs> that, is the, that is the range that, is, that we're working on. <laughs> and yeah. for anyone who doesn't listen to Wolf 359, that is a procedural manual that all the characters in the show have had to read before the plot began and which they constantly reference um and because our supporters on patreon are crazy generous and crazy organized we are now going to actually be making the real copy like an actual written from beginning to end version of that book oh, uh, and it's gonna be great thousand and one tips oh yes and i don't <laughs> I don't want to claim responsibility for it happening, but I feel like my weekly uh, oh, plugging no, for fault. it helped a bit. It is definitely your fault. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not going to apologize because I really, really want that manual. <laughs> <sighs> Deep Space Survival Tip number 83. Actions speak louder than words. Mysterious uh, no, shit. I used to have it memorized, and now I don't. Oh, well. Actions speak louder than words. Um, mysterious, mysterious accidents, accidents speak, speak louder, louder than, than actions. actions. Nothing Nobody can hear you in outer space. You. Or nothing yep. speaks in outer space. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, that's an oldie, but a goodie. Yeah. I used to listen to the live show every time I was in a car ride longer than an hour. Mm -hmm. Just because I enjoy having something familiar to fill my time when I'm in a car, which my driving instructor taught me that cars are just large bombs that you're driving around, which, you know, certainly didn't help my anxiety. <laughs> that seems like a great um, grinning to throw into a young person's mind as they try to learn how to operate a potentially deadly means of transportation. Yep. So I have a lot of the live show memorized. Excellent. Well, that's a good one to have kind of rolling around in your head. Yeah, but uh, recently I've exchanged the live show for Voltfass, which... Excellent. Yes. Very good. I enjoy that episode, that special episode, quite a lot. Because... That's right. That's, that's another one of the ones that we only did because our Patreon followers yeah. were so organized and gave us the chance to do it. Kind of just dropped us, dropped it on us. I was like, whoa, we have not heard anything about this. Well, that's how we, that's how we do. That's how we roll. We like to have our special episode be surprise drops. Yeah, because Change of Mind dropped as a surprise, too, for the uh, non-Patreon feed. That's right. Uh, anyway, let's uh, get on with some questions. All right. So, the very beginning of Wolf 359. Let's, let's start at the beginning, because that's a very good place to start. How did this, this idea come to you well at the time I was just out of college um I had very very impulsively moved to LA and gotten an awesome job that did not 
pay me anything. It was a really fun job helping to edit a film, um, but it was 100% me donating my time. Um, and after about half a year of doing that, I got to the point where I was diagnosed with a um, very crippling condition called having no cash mm. and had to leave that job and start looking for something in the um, kind of menial industry um, sphere. And um, in when I was kind of in that space of looking for a job and I was um, really procrastinating basically mm -hmm. the large stack of job applications that I had to send out every day, um, I would spend a lot of time walking around Los Angeles, listening to podcasts, um, just kind of as a way to like break up the endless chain of cover letters and resume adaptations and just sort of like scouring the worst of Craigslist for anything that might in any way be a job that I could be qualified for. Um, and I remember I was listening to a episode of Radiolab, WNYC's Radiolab, which is a amazing show and if any of you listen to podcasts and you have not checked out radio lab yet do yourself a favor it's one of the granddaddy awesome influencers of the medium but they were doing this episode about space and about kind of the physical and the philosophical and kind of psychological implications of just like how big and empty and strange spaces. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of doing a segment that was speaking about here are the um, just like very crude, very unpleasant, very unromantic realities of how difficult it would be to find alien life. Here's how difficult, here's how unlikely, here's how time-consuming and expensive and just unpleasant the process would be. Um, and halfway through listening to that, this idea just showed up fully formed in my head of just kind of this man who was trapped in the middle of that process, like sort of like someone who was very much stuck, not one of the movers and shakers, not one of the influencers, but just sort of one of the on-the-ground technicians that were caught in the middle of that incredibly difficult, incredibly unpleasant machinery. Um, and I just remember having this sort of like image like in my head of this person that was sitting in a space station bored out of their mind. Um, and they've been doing their job for a long time and their job was kind of, you know, listening to different frequencies of static and scanning different parts of space and kind of all day their job would just kind of be like, all right, candidate number 947B, nope, just static. Candidate number 947C, just static. Um, and that's kind of all their job was. And sort of like, what happens to your mind when you're in that condition? How does it spin out of control? How does it grow? How does, like, you know, what happens to someone when they're in a condition that is like that stark, that isolated? Um, and I spent the rest of the day basically ignoring my job application. And kind of writing out a very, very basic proposal about this man um, and the, what his adventures. Um, and at the time, really misadventures exclusively, I think, was the idea, um, would be. And I got home and I posted on social media that I'd spent the entire day um, procrastinating work. But it was okay because I wrote a proposal for something that counts as work right somebody validate my procrastination by looking at this and telling me that it is something that is worth a day yes um and one of the people that saw it was my good friend zach valenti who very quickly was the one that was kind of like no we should do this and perhaps more importantly we can do this in spite of our absolute lack of dinero this is something that we can execute on and that we can do. Um, and the rest is pretty much history. All right, yeah. So I, let's see, where do we, where do we transition? I'm always really bad at <laughs> transitions. Um, They're tough. It's yeah. tough to pivot. Also, I have a tendency to ramble, so feel free to cut oh, me no. off and interrupt this me. This is a time. show that wholly embraces rambling. This show would not Good. be without rambling. Excellent. I will. Ramble on then. Uh, 
I guess from there it's easy to just transition into casting because you had Zach who was two That's thirds right. of the main cast early on. Well, and for about three weeks, Zach was 100% of mm-hmm. the main cast because the original concept for the show was that. Oh, the, the one man were... show. That's right. It right? was originally yeah. the thought was there would be a one man show. Um, and that there would be other people on the space station and that we would hear about them. But we would go 10 episodes, 15 episodes, maybe even 20 episodes before we finally heard any of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it would be sort of this, like, real shock to the system when, like, you know, on episode 22, suddenly a door opened and Minkowski walked in and you heard her actual voice instead of kind of Eiffel's awful imitation of her. And it would be sort of this, like... (gasps) Oh my God, that's what they actually sound like. Um, and um, Zach very quickly talked me out of this idea. Um, and he just sort of like, I think very wisely said that you that would be sacrificing the quality of episodes one through 21 for the sake of kind of that moment of like system shock in episode 22. Mm-hmm. And that the thing that was most interesting about the show, and there's this like, awful thing that happens where like I write something, everybody kind of gets what the point of it is a lot faster than I do. Um, And that was one of those cases where like, you know, Zach was sort of saying, what's really interesting here is this man's relationship to the three people that are there with him. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of going like, no, what's interesting is the isolation and the difficulty and the unreliable narrator-ness. And Zach was kind of like, no, I mean, that's all fine. That's all cool. But like, what's actually interesting is how he relates to these people. Um, and I kind of like gnashed my teeth and sort of, you know, grumbled and protested a lot. And then I sat down to rewrite the first episode with the other people actually there. Um, and I think that I was two minutes into writing the second episode before all of a sudden it was like, oh no, absolutely, this is the show. This is mm-hmm. so what it needs to be. And this is actually kind of like what is interesting here. Um, but yeah, um, so once we decided that we were going to have multiple, <laughs> multiple actors on the show instead of just kind of a like one-man band, as it were, um, Zach um, sort of took on the challenge of playing the two main male characters. Um, he sort of, you know... Um, was really looking to kind of build his skills as a voice actor. Mm -hmm. And part of those skills was the ability to kind of do like two completely distinct voices and sort of two completely distinct vocal physicalities. Um, Beyond that, there was, um, so there were two other main characters to cast, um, Minkowski, the commander of the space station, Mm -hmm. and Ahira, sort of the onboard autopilot mother program system. Um, And... Minkowski, as soon as we sort of considered um, casting someone for it, one person came to mind, which was Emma Sherjarko, who I'd gone to college with. Um, and I'd seen in a couple of productions, um, and I adored Emma. Emma was someone who could go from, like, you know, a Shakespearean mm-hmm. villain to just, like, the goofiest of comedies in the drop of a hat. And then somehow kind of bring it back to the Shakespearean villain. And, like, that's that like that's hard. Like, you know, going from, like, big and regal to silly and crazy, that is, like, challenging. But to, but to then pivot back and actually have the villainous grandeur yeah. land, that's tough. Um, and she could do it, no problem. Um, Emma was the only person that we considered for Minkowski. We did not talk to anyone else. We did not really even think about anyone else. She was just... The role wasn't specifically written for her, but I think it actually kind of was. I think that the part of my brain that knew where it was going kind of always had her in mind because there was nowhere, no one else. Um, and so then we kind of spent three months trying to cast Hira. Uh, that was honestly sort of like the toughest part of the early show was just kind of finding someone who was able to play the part and willing to play the part. Um, and eventually, um, after a lot of trial and error and after a lot of kind of seeing people who were 
almost right, but not quite there. Mm-hmm. Um, and here is a challenging character because, especially in the first episodes, I think that it really demanded someone that would take a look at a character who was a little bit more blank slate and really kind of bring something into mm-hmm. it. Um, eventually, Zach connected me with um, Michaela Swee, who he was good friends with from college and earlier in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as soon as we heard her do hear her, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this not only sounds good, but this is making me understand the character better to hear it in this person's voice and to hear mm-hmm. what she's doing with it. Um, and when you hear that, you kind of want to follow that to its natural conclusion. You want to sort of, you know, just keep going down that rabbit hole and see everything that you can learn about the character as a writer from that performer. Um, and yeah, so that is how we got kind of our original core cast. Yeah. Um, what about uh, casting other characters? Because as the show went along, you did exponentially increase the cast. <laughs> we did. Um, and past that point, there was a lot of... So after that point, we kind of actually started doing a little bit more of a like rigorous audition process. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, it didn't intentionally come about. Um, like it wasn't something that we planned for, but kind of early on the first season, we sort of looked mm-hmm. around and realized that everyone that worked on the show was a graduate of Wesleyan University, where me and Zach graduated from. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had looked at a couple and talked to a couple of people who were not from Wesleyan, but it just kind of ended up working that way. And once we realized that we got like sort of very defensive about like it being a Wesleyan production, um, And sort of our first kind of um, mode of operation from then onwards was kind of, who were the people at Wesleyan that we admired um, and either wanted to do more work with, or especially for me, who were the people that, like, I was always sad that I never got to work with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Zach Labresco, I remember sort of, you know, almost working on plays with him, like, four times at Wesleyan. And never getting the chance. Um, and then me almost ending up being like a TA for him my senior year. Um, and it just like never lined up. And we were both sort of in this like mutual admiration society of kind of like both of us thinking that the other person was really interesting and really awesome, but never quite getting to connect. Um, so he was one of the first people that we called um, but as the show kept going forwards, the audition process got to be a little bit more rigorous and a little bit tougher. Um, and we started to do things like, um, instead of having people read for just one character, mm-hmm. we would have them read as two or three characters just to sort of um, get to see different aspects of them, get to see them kind of like try to look at different characters Um get to sort of see how they played with people. We started doing auditions where we would bring in members of the cast um, that were already cast and having them act against the new person. Um, We started to kind of like really think it out in sort of like a much more in-depth way than we had before. Um, But it, um, oh gosh, what was I going to say there? Yeah, there was a period in late... 2015 I think that if you look at kind of like the show and its mm-hmm. calendar our first third and fourth season all ended on December 25th and our second season ended like on October 10th um, and everyone was sort of like why did that season end so early and it was kind of like because Zach and I were going like because we're doing casting for three actually four characters at the start of next year. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be our job for about the next six weeks. Like that is going to be what we do. Uh, It kind of got to be like that involved and that crazy. Yeah, no. Uh, I don't even do casting for Tides and I can't imagine because we are also expanding our cast as the show goes on. And we're like, oh God, we got to start thinking about people to talk about. (laughs) No, and it's tough because, you know, and everybody sort of, like, really makes fun of kind of, like, you know, the whole Wolf 359 was all Wesleyan people. But one of the big things that we got out of that was 
because it's a podcast and because people live all over the place, there was a lot of, well, we can't guarantee that you're going to have the person that you're playing the scene against in the same room as you. Mm-hmm. Chances are we may have to record you in separate spaces on separate days, um, possibly like weeks in the middle there. Um, and when you're doing that, it's invaluable if you can have the two actors be people that are like, oh, but I know who my partner is. I did three plays with them back in college. Mm-hmm. I know what their rhythms are. I kind of have an idea about like what their delivery of the line is. I kind of know how much time they're going to put in. Um, and so we sort of like started to discover all sort of things like that about just like how important actor familiarity is, how important sort of past relationships are. Um, you know, sort of in our third season, we had two characters come in and part of the big dynamic with them was that they had been together for like a dozen missions mm-hmm. before we met them and they knew each other inside and out. Um, and so we ended up playing, we ended up casting two actors who, Zach, Labresco, and Noah, who had acted a whole bunch together at Wesleyan, mm-hmm. who'd spent like two years, basically like every year doing like four plays together. Um so that there is kind of that sense of, oh, you remember that time when that crazy thing happened? Because they have had times and crazy things have happened to them. Um, so there's all of these dimensions that I had not even thought about before doing the show that I kind of learned on the go. Mm-hmm. Now, I totally get that. In fact, a large part of our casting in Montague was finding someone who uh, Julia, our main actress, could act against and who she knew well enough to have a sort of uh not quite antagonistic relationship with but it was clear that they were still friends so we spent a lot of time well not a lot of time because julia had someone in mind and i did too Mm -hmm. and it was the same person but that's great yeah so we spent some time making sure that that was something and we're going to do the same for the rest of the crew because it's important to us that these people sound like that they've actually been on a spaceship together for months and months and months traveling to this alien world absolutely yes we want them to sound like real people thank you for your input rachel One day you're just going to become a guest voice on this podcast. (laughs) Cameos are important. Thank you for the goat noise. (laughs) Well, you were a guest voice on Tides, but this is for Miss Weekly. Different podcast. (laughs) Anyway. Uh... Casting, uh, writing. Let's go to writing. Sure, sure. Always fun, never difficult, um, <laughs> very relaxing, and not time-consuming at all. No, not. I've only written, like, one thing. Totally not. Totally didn't take all of November and most of December and even some of this month to get halfway decent with it. (laughs) So how about, uh, let's talk about early, early drafts of Wolf, which you mentioned it was originally a one-man show. Oh, yes. But the change from even those to maybe the final draft and i know you you said you would go back and rewrite redo the first three episodes but like were if, there I, a... if i could i would like to sort of take another pass at those yeah yeah but that way madness lies no <laughs> yeah um but like were there any early early drafts that you did that then you changed like just before recording or maybe even after recording and had to re-record you know i don't think that we have ever recorded re-recorded something for writing purposes Mm. um we have had to re-record things due to audio problems which is always heartbreaking 
Mm -hmm. um, because it's really sort of tough to go to the actors and kind of go. So you remember that amazing performance that you gave that was super affecting and just like really exhausting. I need you to do it again with less preparation and it needs to be just as good as the thing that you did before. Cool? Cool. Um, but no, um, the scripts for Wolf 359 were constantly in flux. Mm -hmm. Um, we were, we were sort of an odd combination of a, um, very tightly scripted show. There wasn't a lot of improvisation. There wasn't a whole lot of just kind of like the actors kind of mm -hmm. going off and doing their own thing. We generally sort of recommended that they stay in the rails that the writers had laid out in front of them. But there definitely was a lot of in rehearsal kind of, um, and I directed all the episodes except for one episode. There was definitely a lot of kind of, mm -hmm. okay, hold on one second that line sounds like it's bothering you. Is there a problem there? And then the actor would kind of go, well, I just kind of don't think that they would say this for X reason. And then we would sort of spend like five minutes coming up with an alternative. And then we would all kind of like scribble that into our scripts. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, I think that if you ever sort of do, um, if you go to our website and look at the scripts for Rule 359 and you sit down and you kind of read along with them as you listen to the episodes, you'll sort of hear a lot of little discrepancies and you'll sort of hear the lines that changed. Um, and that's probably because we were kind of crossing things out in the studio and kind of writing in like little um, substitutes. Um, but I mean, I think that like the biggest learning curve for making the show is kind of going from my general idea of what the characters were to the specific way that they were once they were played by the actors. Um, and it's just sort of, there's a difference between Doug Eiffel and Doug Eiffel played by Zach Valenti. Um, Zach Valenti, I think, made him a little bit sharper than the idea that I had in my mind. And perhaps a little bit um, sweeter and a little bit softer um, and a little bit more self-deprecating um, and self um, you know, I think that the, that Doug Eiffel is played by Zach has a lot of anger at himself mm -hmm. that, um, uh, Doug Eiffel played by another person doesn't have. And when we say that we got better as writing the show, I think that the main thing that changed was that we learned to listen to what the actors were doing with the characters. And mm -hmm. we started to calibrate for that specifically. Um, and because we got to spend four years with them, we got to really hear what that was um, and be able to kind of really zero in on what they were doing. But I think that that is sort of like the biggest thing that changed over the four years was just kind of our getting closer and closer and closer and closer to just kind of following the actors' leads on where their performance wanted the characters to go. And often that resulted in a lot of last-minute scribbles and last-minute mm -hmm. line adjustments as we were all sort of calibrating towards that um, kind of platonic ideal of who these people were in the actor's heads. All right, that's useful info. Useful thing to think about. Oh, what did I do? Ah. <laughs> what did you God. do? I brushed on the touchpad and it thought I wanted to see all of my applications at once. I did not want to see all of my applications at once. <laughs> All right, from writing, the next logical step for me is editing, especially now that I am editing a podcast. Yeah, especially now that you're on your own editing adventures. Yeah, fun. <laughs> so uh, I guess growing pains with editing would be a good place to start. Like, did you have any major experience before you started doing Wolf 359, or is it very much learning on the go? Well, sort of. I edited film. So I had a little bit of just sort of that experience of compiling information onto mm -hmm. a timeline and arranging them in a certain order and kind of finding ways to combine things from one take for another take. Um, 
I'd never done much work with audio. I considered myself functionally kind of audio illiterate when I started the show. Um, and uh, I think that my experience kind of basically amounted to like, I like music. I find music pleasant. <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and there were definitely a lot of moments at the start of the show where it was just kind of like, what does it mean to adjust the disciples? I'm pretty sure is how you say that word. Yes. Um, but no, I kind of jumped off the deep end. I um, got Adobe Audition and I got kind of like one of those like Adobe Audition for total beginners mm -hmm. books um, and just sort of like spent like a weekend going kind of page by page and trying to like find all the things and learn, kind of manipulate waveforms and what the different things were. Um, and uh, I think that the thing that really allowed us to function as a show was that the workflow that I've developed fortunately um, allowed a lot of the like experiments from one episode to carry over to the next. Mm -hmm. So for example, the first episode I spent maybe 15 hours trying to figure out how to make Hira's voice sound right because she's an artificial program. Mm -hmm. She's supposed to sound like she's coming to a speaker instead of being in the room. And we also wanted to have some kind of electronic glitch effect on her voice. And so there was a lot of kind of trial and error in figuring mm -hmm. that out. But then once it's figured out, it's just very, it was very easy to kind of go, I'm just going to save all these settings. And now the next episode, I just press my hero button that I made. Mm -hmm. And all that's right there. And from now onwards, that is two seconds of work. Um, and I think that you sort of see it like, you know, you kind of, you can sort of, the way that if you, you know, you cut a tree and you see the rings of its age. If you sort of go back in Wolf 59, you sort of see like the rings of like Gabriel Urbina, audio editor, as you sort of start to be like, all right, so he figured that effect. And now he kind of figured out how to make things sound like they're in the other room. And now he sort of, you know, figured out how to do um, ambient sounds a little bit more fully. And now he learned how to do this. Um, but yeah, but it was sort of very much kind of a, every episode probably had like a major learning experience that then became a resource for future episodes. Yeah, with, with the trailer and episode of editing I have under my belt, I know that I've had a couple moments where I was like, oh, it's so much easier if I just do it that way. Why did I try yep. to do it like that in the first place, kind of? Yep. Like the one I can really remember and I think I mentioned this to you and Zach once, but uh, there was a point where Yuris was walking towards and then away from a river, and I was like, how do I get it to sound like she's coming towards and away from it? And so at first I just layered the river over itself in different volumes, and I was like, wait, why don't I just have them fade into each other? It was so much easier, and I hated myself for about a day. <laughs> yeah. I just made There's... like an extra two hours of work for myself. No, and there's, I mean, the unfortunate reality is that kind of like all the work that you put into it is kind of what lets you see the mm -hmm. simple solution. Um, I remember there's an episode of World 359, Desperate Times, where much of the episode is kind of cutting back and forth between two different points in time. You're kind of seeing what is happening in the present and then flashing back to an explanation of the past of what the plan that certain characters are going to try to do is. And you're seeing them playing out more or less simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of kind of just like going from one space to another, back to the other space, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and it took me like eight hours to edit. It was madness um, because I was just having to like constantly adjust the ambient sounds and just sort of put in like the effects and manage the volumes of everything and manage the timing of everything. And I think that after I was done with it, after having taken eight hours, I kind of looked at it all and just sort of like, because I was finally able to step back and take a breath because it was done, then I saw the code in the matrix. And it was like, oh, that could have taken me like an hour and 15 minutes if I had just done this smart thing at the beginning that I now realize is there. Um, and in the moment, you hate yourself because in the moment, it's just sort of this like, why did I not see this? It was right there. Look at it. It was practically waving at you. Um, but then you're never going to not see it again. 
you know, once yeah. it's there, once you sort of see it, you just know. And never again will you not do it the smart way. Yeah, because I... Makes sense. I mean, especially since audio is such a floaty medium. Does does floaty make sense in this context? I think I know what you mean. I think I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. It's so not uh, not concrete at all. It's very up to the the whim of the moment, kind of. So when you've done all that work and you listen back to it, you hear all of the places you could have just tweaked it a little bit and made your job that much easier because Absolutely. now you've already done the job. So you already know all the work you had to do. So your brain just automatically starts finding work that you could have saved time on. That's right. Cause even it's been a week now since Tide's first episode has been out and I've listened back to it once and I was like, Oh, I could have done that. So I could have made that sound so much cleaner or so much cooler. Now I'm just making mental notes in my head. All right, so when this sound effect pops up in episode six, I know how to do it. So it sounds cleaner and better and easier to put in general. Well, that, I think, is just the natural learning curve yeah. of anyone coming into a new discipline. Because, and I think... It, Again, probably one of the things that I like about podcasts so much is that everyone experiences the learning curve. Like, uh, and it's something that other people can help out so much with. Like, uh, when Tides came out, um, I got feedback on the audio and I was like, okay, I see, I hear that. I understand mm -hmm. what they're talking about. So now I can go back and make adjustments to make that sound less manufactured right and it's i i don't want to say it's harder because a lot of tides is directional audio because it always has to sound like fred is moving through the environment so i have to spend a lot of time planning how making him move through the environment yeah, making her move through the environment. And the first big step for that was footsteps because uh, the director really wanted it to sound like she was actually walking through this sort of muddy, silty area. And I was like, okay, I have this footstep sound. So at first I just kind of looped it over and over again and then I went back and I was like wait no that's gonna sound really stupid so I went back and I made it sound like she paused at some points and I made it sound like she took quicker steps at others it still sounds like a loop but it sounds like a more interesting loop now <laughs> well that's what matters yeah it matters finding interesting ways to do really mundane things you know I find that people and some people are not. Some people are real petty foggers. Um, but I find that a lot of people are very forgiving of things like repeated sound effects mm -hmm. or things that are happening on loop. Um, and I think it is because the medium just um, requires that you put so much of it, so much of your own mental images and your own mental projections into it. Um, that the sound effects are just kind of there to cue you. And once you've been cued, you're kind of filling in the environments yourself, and you're not quite paying attention to it the same way. Whereas I think that in something like television or film, mm -hmm. if because they're kind of giving you a lot more of it, because you're kind of getting like 90% of what's happening um, just through the visuals and the yeah. audio, the moment that you start to kind of see the characters walking and walking and walking, and all of a sudden they're walking past the same lamp like four times, your brain then starts to be like, no, hang on a second. I'm no longer buying this. Um, and I think it is because you're not being asked to put in so much of it yourself because it's so much less of it is required that you mm -hmm. are more critical and more likely to like zero in on those little continuity things. Um, whereas in audio drama, I think people are a lot more forgiving. Yeah, that was... Uh... 
one of the notes I got back was not only just paying attention to how it sounds, but there are some things that I don't have control over in editing. Like uh, one note we got back was you could hear Julia's uh, walls in her recording, and we're like, well, we we don't have. Yeah, not gonna do, studio. not gonna be able to do so, much about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, I could hand wave it and say, well, she's talking from inside her suit right now. So you could bullshit and say that the the wall sounds is her talking through the suit to her external mic. But then in later episodes, she takes off her helmet and then we don't have that excuse anymore. So, At a certain point, you just need to kind of be yeah. willing to have those things be a bit of a gimme. I mean, because where we're at, I'm really happy with the audio quality that I'm being given and all of the takes are really great. And I feel like eventually my own skills will get to a point where I will worry less about that stuff and more about... Uh, I had a word. I lost the word. It'll come back to you. Don't worry. Maybe. I don't know. not coming i'll worry less about making things sound realistic and more just making it sound interesting so that maybe at least the interesting sounds will keep attention away from what i can't fix yeah i think that that is a good um balance to strike And there are absolutely times when you just need to kind of let go a little bit of some things that yeah. are just going to be what they are. And that is going to be all right. And some people are going to let that be such a distraction that they're not going to be able to get into it at all. And that is also all right. Yeah. I know that when I first started listening to audio drama, I was a lot less uh, lenient than I am now. Mm-hmm. Because I... My very first audio drama was, uh, oh God, it's been so long. Beyond Belief, uh, which is oh, part of the Thrilling, thrilling adventure, adventure Hour, which is, you know, ho like Hollywood actors who've had tons of experience in a really well-produced staged yes. area. It sets the bar quite yeah. high. <laughs> Which was unfortunate because I remember listening to, I think it was, it was either Station to Station or, what was the other one? God, it was one that Zach was in. It was one of the Zacks. One of the Zacks was in it, and uh, I was listening to frozen it. Frozen on me? It was, I don't. I don't remember, but it was basically horror on a boat. So it was either station to station or uh, under pressure. <laughs> and the sort of rough sound quality of it just immediately turned me off because they both have that sort of underlying level of static trying to make it sound like it's a person recording on just like an open recording device rather than through like a nice sound system and so that just turned me off immediately and I definitely remember going back later after I listened to more and I was like you know this isn't so bad I was too harsh on it at first because the what grew on me was the acting and did I did I lose you did I The image appears to be frozen.
All right. Hey, Megan? Yes. Yep. For a moment, it was like, it seemed to have hung up, and then I could not reach you when I tried calling. Because <laughs> uh, I was talking for a hot minute, and I realized, wait, he's not moving. <laughs> uh, I don't know where it cut off. But long, too long didn't read. I came back months later after listening to more audio drama, and I was like, yeah, this isn't so bad. The actors are really good, and it's just right. I have to overlook this one sound thing that I don't like. And eventually I just kind of got used to it. And I even use that for, uh, for tides now, too, is because Fred's talking on a... At, at this moment, it's a one-way audio channel. There's static from the other line because she's not connected with anyone. Mm. At least that's the idea I have in my head. I don't know if that is going to come across until much later when we well, introduce we'll the other characters. But eh. it sounds like a good creative solution to sort of the obstacle. Because it is supposed to be an audio channel that she's supposed to be able to use to contact her uh, fellow xenobiologists in the ship while she's planet side. But because of space stuff, the connection got jarred and the beacon lost power, so she has to. That's a big driving force of the show, is she has to find a new place to put the beacon so she can get back in contact with the people mm -hmm. on the ship. I've done a lot of thinking about this, and writing and story stuff isn't even my my part of the podcast. But Your forte. Well, no, because it's Jesse's story, and Ayla's the director. I'm just here to put the sounds and the spaces and the audio drama on time. Sure, sure. So... But I, I feel like there's an important part of it for me to also understand from a story standpoint why I'm doing what I'm doing, which right. is why I spend so much time just thinking about the smaller things in the audio. And probably I end up getting in my own head a lot and overthinking a lot of it. But what works, works. Eventually, I'll have a light bulb moment, and I'll be like, dang it, but that time is not But now, then so. you'll carry that dang it forward, and that yeah. dang it will make you faster and sharper in all your future endeavors. I feel like I've rambled for a long time. Uh, let me see if I well, can... Well, you said it yourself, this is a ramble friend. Yeah, this is, this is a very much ramble show, yeah. <laughs> but the reason why I do interviews is to get another voice to ramble instead of mine. <laughs> Uh, Just posh. It was a good ramble. It, yeah, I, I feel like I even learned something from my own ramble, which is another reason I do this show. Uh, <laughs> writing, directing, editing. Um, I guess we touched on the on the Patreon part at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh. But I guess since you've had the Patreon for quite a while, maybe talk about what it was like having it. Like, growing pains with Patreon. That's, that's a better way to put it. I don't know that there were a lot of growing pains with Patreon. There were a lot of growing delights with Patreon. Um, no, and I think that what was kind of important was that... Um, we spent two whole years of the show with no source of crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people were sort of asking us, do you have a Kickstarter? Do you have an Indiegogo? Do you have a place where we can throw money at you? Um, and for a long time, the answer was sort of an honest, no, but we want to. Mm -hmm. And we also want to do it right and that takes a little bit of time to figure out. So stay tuned. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time that we did launch a Patreon, 
there were enough people that had been wanting to give us money that overnight we were able to get a very sizable chunk of, um, you know, sort of like mm -hmm. uh, money coming in every month. Um, we had a goal that was, I think, about at $1,000. And season three would be 18 episodes instead of 15. Mm -hmm. And we sort of went into it just kind of being like, we have no idea what to expect. Let's see if maybe we get to $1,000. And we got it to 1000 about overnight, um, which was crazy. Um, and after that, we were able to kind of jump over what I have since discovered is a problem that a lot of people and a lot of kind of emerging artists have with mm -hmm. Patreon, where they launch on Patreon and they start to get, say, a moderate amount of followers and a moderate amount of people that are willing to donate. And so they kind of end up in that, like, 200 to 600 a month range, mm -hmm. which is absolutely nice. Absolutely. You know, that is like a part-time paycheck, and that is great. Mm -hmm. But it's not substantial enough for you to be able to make any real upgrades to your art. Mm -hmm. And it's also not substantial enough that you're able to kind of take the step back in your other work to spend the time that you really need to spend on Patreon in order to make the rewards happen. Mm -hmm. um, that was another, that was actually one of the growing pains with us, was just kind of like, we thought that managing Patreon would be a lot of work and a lot of time. Mm -hmm. We were not prepared for just how much work and how much time it takes. Of, it is a job to create all the rewards, to be in touch with people. Mm -hmm. um, we just by necessity have kind of ended up taking an attitude of, we will try to get everything to you and sort of fulfill everything in a timely-esque fashion. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and I think sort of like the big lesson that we accidentally were able to like stumble into and seem like smart people, but it was purely by accident, was if you delay on starting your crowdfunding until there is more critical mass, you will actually be able to get like the results that you need to get in order to make making whatever you're trying to crowdfund a more substantial part of your day. Mm -hmm. um, and if you just kind of rush into it, it may not be quite as, it will definitely be a help, but it may not be quite as much help as you expect it to be for a while. It may take a little bit of time to get to that like place where it is really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and it may, in fact, kind of end up being hourly more work than what you are getting paid for each month in order to do all the things that you have to do to maintain mm -hmm. it. Um, there are a lot of complicated in and ins and outs of crowdfunding. But I think that one of the sort of like big things that we learned was wait until there are people that are knocking on your door asking for ways to support you instead of trying to convince people to support you. Mm -hmm. um, and that way things will sort of feel much more organic and much more um, like they're working the way that they should. Also, time limits. People really really respond well to looming threats of well this is going to be over soon so you know help us while the helping is available <laughs> yeah because uh, I, I feel like there was a a large portion where uh, you went to the 5000 goal for the deep space survival procedure and protocol manual but that was because mm -hmm. of a lot of people had donated a lot of money to get to the goal before that, before its time oh, limit right. was up. And then you dropped back down because those people couldn't keep up that sort of monthly contribution. And because the show ended, I think. Yeah. And because a lot of people sort of kind of went, we got them to the finish line. Um, and that's it. Um, incidentally, I mean, I think that you hear the results of us having the Patreon in the show pretty much immediately. Because you can kind of, you know, the Patreon happened at the start of season three, which is all of a sudden when kind of like the average episode length jumps from like 25 minutes to 35 minutes. Um, 
And that's because all of a sudden it was like, oh, we can afford more studio time. We're not just like trying to cram two episodes into a three-hour session. Um, and it's sort of here, you know, the stories get bigger and stranger. Mm-hmm. We do more things with more people in the studio. Um, we start playing around with like longer episodes. Um, so it really absolutely transformed the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you look at kind of like the first half of C- the first half of Wolf 359, the second half of Wolf 359, the first half is a young sort of kind of like a very scrappy, can-do, small show. And then I think that the second half is much more of a like big, crazy, ambitious epic. Yeah, I definitely see that. <laughs> because uh, even just the introduction, I was like happily floating through Wolf 359, and then you get to the end of season one, which is the first big kind of dramatic point. Yeah, dramatic event. And then because I came into it kind of late, I was able to jump straight in, straight, straight? What? <laughs> straight yeah. into season two, which... St- no, if you, if you had to wait at the cliffhanger at the end of season one, that's how you know you're one of the OG people. Because back then there were like a hundred people listening to us, total. <laughs> I did not. I was the only, the only podcasts I was listening. I lied. I lied about my first audio drama. My first audio drama was Welcome to Night Vale, way back in 2012. Which also sets a very high bar. Yeah. Um, Okay, where was I? Where was I going before I tripped over my words and then got lost on the Wayback Machine? Um, So the first dramatic pivot, Yeah, the first dramatic event, and then I went straight into season two, which introduces cutter in the kumbaya approach which is another like break from form because it doesn't start the way the episodes have started for the entire first season it just sort of goes with cutter and i was like holy crap and then you've got that season you've got loveless and whole bunches of backstory with the hephaestus mission that's right. And you're kind of just given all this in a season, and it's like, wow. And then season three happens, and you've got even more bigger dramatic stuff, and it just builds and builds and builds to season four and the finale, which, you know, I I have some things that I, I sort of wish could have been expanded upon, but also I'm really happy with how you ended it. Like, oh, I well, thank you. Don't foresee a, a different way it could have ended, really, without killing everyone and having a really bleak ending for what usually <laughs> tends to be a bittersweet show. Right. And I'm usually not about that. I'm sometimes about that, but I'm usually much more about, like, bleak, 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 somewhat happy ending. I yeah. think that's kind of like, bleak, 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 and then they all died, is a tough sell. Tough sell. Really tough sell. Uh, And plus, I mean, the final episode was fucking audio movie. What more could you ask for? (laughs) (laughs) I was not expecting that on Christmas Eve. I was expecting, like, another regular-sized episode, but you you know what? We got a Christmas present, and it was two and a half hours long, and I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. It was... We put everything that we wanted to into that episode, and so it spiraled a little bit out of control, but I loved it. There's a lot of sort of, I guess, you realize that I think this is something that happens with a lot of media, too, is, like, the final episode is always, when they know it's the final episode, it's always the biggest, most ambitious thing they've ever done. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, you don't want to walk away with kind of any regrets of, oh, I won't, I wish that we had tried yeah. X thing. Or I wish that we'd done that one more time, or that we'd had, like, one more scene between those people. You kind of go into writing a finale episode. It's just kind of like, (laughs) 
all right, kids, this is it. Now or never, you know. Speak now or forever hold your peace with these characters. Yeah. So they tend to get to be really big and crazy and epic things. And we got a lot of things that I know... Uh, like, the fourth season was really a season for you guys to just do all the things you wanted, but also you gave fans a lot of stuff that they had been asking for, too. Not just in terms of Patreon <laughs> rewards, but also sure. in terms of, like, story stuff, and we even got to see the characters coming onto the Hephaestus for the first time, which was something I feel like I remember you saying wouldn't happen. Surprise! That was a clever lie. <laughs> so there were lots of things in the finale where I was like, ah, we might not get this, but eh, whatever. And then we got it, and I was like, hey, he lied to us. That's right, as I often do. <laughs> yeah, as you tend to do. I mean, Bob still lives, but boy, did he sure die! Indeed. Indeed. It was not... And also you took the... the Probably the, the moment in the finale that I hold deep in my heart was I never really... I was sort of behind the Cutter and Price were aliens thing, but I held deep in my heart that it wouldn't go that way, and you literally took a good chunk of a scene to spend just laughing at it. That's right. Like... That was, that was good for my heart. I, I laughed with them. I mean, I was a little off-put because nothing should ever make them that happy after it's been so serious the past several episodes, but definitely, yeah. Especially since Eiffel was the first one to connect the dots between who they were and who they are. Right. To kind of articulate it in that in way. Well, and that's also why it's important that Volt Foss come that late in the yeah. game. Because it's important that you get to terms and conditions and you still have that possibility in your head of, well, they're clearly somewhat more than regular humans. Yeah. It, could it be possible that they're... Like, you're supposed to yeah. sort of have and that it's... thought. And it's supposed to kind of make a kind of awful sense. And then no. Never and then mind. No. no. And then after that, we got uh, Volt Foss, and I was like, holy shit, this is everything I ever wanted. Right. Because <laughs> we got... We got uh, Rachel's introduction, and we got to learn about Cutter's backstory, which led into the beginning of the finale, which was Miranda's uh, take on their backstory, which was really interesting. Because you know when an episode starts like that, it's going to be one hell of an episode. Right. So I was, like, expecting the finale to be kind of like that as soon as it went into Price talking about her dolls. Indeed. Bridge, just a heads up, I should run relatively you know, soon. I should probably go to any last things i do have a couple more minutes um i don't know i guess this is where we do uh where can people find you on social media because i know you're like oh, never sure. on social media <laughs> at all but you know yeah um best place right now is on twitter at gabriel g-a-b-r-i-e-l urbina u-r-b-i-n-a t-m like trademark Gabriel Urbina, TM. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And you can also visit gabrielurbina.com. Um, and there's some information on my writing, some information on the freelance work that I do, some essays on audio dramas. Um, and you can also shoot me an email at contact at gabrielurbina.com. Those yeah. are the best places to reach me. And uh, hopefully soon there will be more information about new projects. Yeah, that'll be... Places. I mean, those are the places to check and see if it's like the... Oh, God, there's the vacuum cleaner. Uh, best places to see if uh, there's new stuff coming in the future, which, you know... Spoilers, there will be. 
there will be more stuff coming in the future. Yes, it's just a matter of... I never would have guessed that you would have continued doing more stuff. stuff. I know. Me and stuff. <laughs> it's weird. Just doing stuff. I mean, now that you've got all this free time in your life, you've got to find something, right? That's right. Uh, anyway, my stuff, you can find me at Corner and Share on, like, everywhere um, this weekly. I don't know what the heck is up with iTunes. It seems to not want to list my show, even though when I check, what? it says it's there. Uh, so I guess Awesome, the place where it's hosted, is currently the best place to listen. Uh, yeah, this was episode 14 with Gabriela Urbina, the Thank writer, you so director, much for having me. producer, editor uh, of Wolf 359, which is an amazing audio drama. If you haven't listened to it, I just realized I should have started this episode with a spoiler warning. Whatever, I can edit that in. Warning. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this was we didn't 14, go into and too thank you much for crazy on the stuff. Show. We didn't like mention how everyone dies or anything. <laughs> yeah.